Professor Allen's Comics Reading Journal for the month of February 2019. Welcome to episode 45 of this podcast series. The concept of the show is to just have a brief chat about what comics I've read since the last time we had one of these brief chats, which should make this pretty much the books I read during February. These books are listed weekly in blog posts at eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com, and I regularly repost those links on my Facebook and Twitter so you can find those. But those posts are not to be considered spoilers for this podcast, since those are just lists. And here, there's a little more review, a little more critique, a little more discussion. But first, a little feedback. Sir Iowa's Joe said that he loved Amazing Age, and I'd be interested in more of that miniseries if I could find it. Dr. Ange wrote in about Justice League Dark, which he is really enjoying. Last episode, I talked about the issue in which Detective Chimp narrates a bunch of small stories, and Ange said, loved it, felt like a DC horror anthology book, with individual stories introduced. This title has been great from the get-go. Sentiments I totally agree with. He also caught some direct connections between this story and the classic Swamp Thing 50, the finale of American Gothic. Definitely seems to be drawing some of its plot points from Alan Moore's run, where the Brujeria were increasing occult power and having people tell monster stories, increasing belief in the other side. Now, all of this Ange posted on Twitter, and the artist, Alvaro Martinez Bueno, responded to Ange tweets, Thank you. Glad that we succeeded in our little homage. So good job, Ange. Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist and writer of Hamilton vs. Burr, A Werewolf Tale, commented about one of the books I mentioned. I love Richard Dragon, especially when Dixon and McDaniel brought him back in 2000. Now, I'm not familiar with that run, but if it's Chuck Dixon, I imagine it's pretty great. Dr. Anthony the Engineer wrote in about the book Summit, about the astronaut who survives a disaster. Professor, given that you enjoyed the title Summit, you might consider sampling other books from Lion Forge's Catalyst Prime Universe. In the comics Noble and Kino, we see that two other astronauts also survived. Other titles focus on civilian characters affected by the event. Now. The good doctor disliked Summit Number 1 and didn't like 2 through 4 much either, which he'd read based on my recommendation. But hey, we're all about the positive, he says. So if you like it, Professor, then great. Enjoy it. And then he took me to task for saying that the way the engineers were portrayed was pretty good, especially compared to the Big Bang Theory. The hackneyed stereotypes of the MIT engineering team made me cringe. I have spent time in academia. With my fellow engineers, they have to disagree with you about the authenticity of these characters. I feel I'm qualified to say this given that I earned my engineering doctorate, unlike some Eastern European despots with self-described doctor titles. Still listening and enjoying the show, Dr. Anthony the Engineer. I will ignore the unwarranted swipes at the rightful ruler of Latveria and simply say that my associations with business and finance faculty and the occasional 
communications professor. I mean, based on those, the social awkwardness portrayed in that book, it seemed about right. Now, it wasn't specifically related to this show exactly, just as a general thing that I did, but I put up a Twitter question about what kind of comic book cover is worse, the cover that doesn't relate at all to anything on the inside of the book, or the one that reveals the twist from the last page or two. Not an official Twitter poll, but about 30% said the cover not being in the book was worse, and about 70% said the ending reveal was worse. Arguing for the first choice, Nightstar357 said, If you ponder it, a cover of any comic is the first thing you see. Why would you put something on it that doesn't relate or isn't within the storyline? Comics are much better than just colored pictures. They can be an escape, even if only briefly. The Ronald Rump comic project was pretty blunt. The former is worse because it's a lie. The second is a problem only if it's a letdown. The Liquid Awesome didn't like the former because it's so rampant these days on comics. Then arguing for the latter choice, that the ending reveal was worse, Gregory Litchfield replied that it's definitely worse for me when a comic book cover recreates any revelations that are on the last pages of a story. It always makes me think, why did I even bother reading the issue? I'm much more forgiving of covers that don't accurately reflect the interiors of a book. Steve Myers said that he was used to covers Steve Myers said he was used to covers that don't depict what's in the issue. But spoiler covers kind of always suck. And I really liked Neil Stanifer's notion. The former, at least, permits me to imagine an Elseworld scenario where that scene actually happens in the story. Now that is brilliant. And I think Dolores Tenari made the strongest case for that side of the argument, giving the end away should be a punishable offense. There were other comments as well. I just pulled a few reflective of both sides of that argument. And uh, thanks for everyone who participated. Social media love for that last episode came from Chris Ouellette, Luke Giaconetti, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Ed Moore from the Mighty Thorcast, James Simpson, Jason Marcinette, Christopher Aguilar, The Collected Edition Podcast, Old School Ross, Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, Mike Peacock from Justice's First Dawn, and the wonderful Sutherlands from the RAD Adventures Network. And now, on to the books that I read last month. And as we do on this show, we're going to categorize the books that I read. And first are the books I read specifically for podcast appearances. The homework books. And for Quarterbin 133, I read, well, I read something, but I'll actually be talking about that book later in the episode. So we move on to new comics that I read right off the shelves. Adventures of the Super Sons 7. We've turned the corner on this series just past halfway through the 12-issue run. Our young heroes are in space jail, but Joker Jr. has tracked them down. So now Damien has to fight his way through the prison to find where they're keeping John in solitary confinement. Good action, good fight. I understand having to separate the leads, 
but they are both much better when they're together and can play off of each other. Justice League Dark, number eight. The failing of all magic continues, and although I've commented in the past that I was a little tired of this trope, this type of story, it's really being executed well here. The other kind have infiltrated our realm, and Papa Midnight has fled, and actually kind of a funny scene. And now the big guns have showed up, and that would be Nabu and the Lords of Order. So things are about to get serious. Wonder Woman, 63 and 64. 63 was my favorite G. Willow Wilson issue so far, but it was sort of a downtime issue, so I'm not sure what this says. It's three talking animals from Themyscira trying to make their way in our world because Diana said it would work. It said that it would be easy for them to fit in. But it doesn't actually work all that well, really. And in 64, Veronica Kale is back and has a plan to turn the media, and thus the citizenry, against Wonder Woman. This has given me some hope that the title is starting to turn back around, Wilson getting her feet under her, and after a number of weak issues, again, hopefully, the, the tide is turning. And from the good folks at Alterna, providers of new comics at the awesome price of $1.50, I read Feaster Famine, number two, in which alternate universe versions of Tesla and Einstein respond to an alien signal from outer space. And they arrive at their alien destination in this issue, and they get separated, and really bad things happen to at least one of them. This wraps up next issue, and I'm looking forward to that. I've enjoyed this series pretty well, although it does seem that they have a lot of work to do in just one more issue. Now, the last time I said that, can't remember exactly which series it was from Alterna, but we got a double-sized final issue at the outrageous price of $1.99. So wouldn't surprise me if that happened again with Feast or Famine. Also from Alterna, I read the first of a four-part series, Unit 44, number one. The government misses payments on one of Area 51's off-site storage units, and it gets purchased by a couple of guys with a thrift shop, a la TV's Storage Wars. And by the time our odd couple pair of federal agents track down these guys who bought the unit, the one most important and powerful artifact has disappeared. It's a good idea, a good concept, and a good start to a series. Again, this is one that I have high hopes for. And on to the general comic reading that I did. Direct from the quarter bins of World's Greatest Comics, I read a coverless and borderline falling apart Incredible Hulk Annual number 10, which was a Bill Mantlo story from 81, in which Banner is separated from the Hulk, and then he became Captain Universe somehow, and he uses the Omnipower to reverse a nuclear weapon that the U.S. has accidentally launched. Crazy story. And Fate number zero. Now, there were some very good books in Zero Hour. I liked the main series a lot, to be honest. And then there were some that weren't so great. And then below that was Fate number zero. And Detective Comics 528 from 1983. Reading DC books from this era, as I've commented before, you can see maybe why sometimes the crisis was needed, or at least why a reboot 
was needed. Some of the concepts were getting pretty tired. But this one I quite enjoyed, especially the Gene Colan and Klaus Janssen art. This one also had the early original take on Harvey Bullock, and he and Commissioner Gordon were not getting along, and I liked that take on the relationship conflict. From the dollar boxes at Half Price Books, I picked up Batman 576. It's a Larry Hama written issue, and it finds Batman rescuing the son of a powerful Middle Eastern sheikh who has been kidnapped while they were visiting Gotham City. And the kid is afraid of bats, which makes the rescue a little tricky. Good issue. I don't know how long Larry Hama wrote Batman or how his run is thought of, but I enjoyed this one. I also found from those same dollar bins the first two issues of a 2016 series from Marvel, Elektra 1 and 2. In these ones, she finds herself in Las Vegas just trying to blend in, to lay low, we've all been there, until she discovers that a hotel worker is being abused by her boss, and then she stops laying low and steps in. A couple of pretty good issues. And I found one of the oldest and coolest books I've ever seen at the half-price books dollar boxes, Metal Men, number 14, cover dated early 1965, making the book just a little older than me. And it's actually in slightly worse condition than me. See, for me, when I say I'm falling apart, that's like an expression, an exaggeration. But this book, that's a literal description. And that's not a bad The team goes up against Chemo, the chemical menace, and much action, and since it's the Metal Men, much angst occur. And a couple of Bronze Age deals, All-Star Comics 68 and Weird Western Tales 65, both in varying stages of falling apartedness. Neither was great, but All-Star Comics included the Psycho Pirate, and the ending was great because he had caused paralyzing fear and all of the heroes, but Wildcat was able to overcome his because he ain't so easy to frighten, and he laid a big old consequence on the pirate's chin. The Scalp Hunter story in Weird Western? Eh, not as good as many I've read before. I also read the latest issue of a series that I've been reading as they've come out, featuring a character I discovered a few free comic book days ago. Street Angel versus Ninja Tech. After a deadly encounter with Ninja Carl, Street Angel decides to retaliate by going directly to the source by battling Ninja Tech, the company at the cutting edge of the ninja industrial complex. And using a genius trick involving Take Your Daughter to Work Day, she does just that. And from the aforementioned Dr. Anthony the Engineer, I read some of the cool books that he sent in recently, such as Hinterkind, number one, from Vertigo, 2013. It's a post-apocalypse story where the lands have reverted to their natural state, and we have fallen from our place at the top of the food chain. Interesting story, but not really anything I hadn't read before. And Free Comic Book Day 2012, The Hypernauts. This is Abnett and Lanning, so it's competent, professionally written. It's also a near-future story, although less dystopian than Hinterkind. It's a sci-fi hero story, and I like those. 
and I think it laid down some pretty good groundwork. Solid enough first issue. And DC Universe presents 19 from the New 52. This is the last issue of that title, and it also has the distinction of being one of the gatefold covers, which for a brief time was promoted as WTF month, if you remember. In this case, we have a terrible scene on the front with Flash and Superman in great distress. And then we unfold the cover to see Beowulf. And that's what the story is, Druids and Grendel and Beowulf. Not bad. The cover may have been the highlight of the issue, though. And longtime friend of the network, Ron Sadowski, one of the earliest members of the hashtag comic book circle of life movement, also sent a care package during the holiday season, and that included Captain Carrot and his amazing zoo crew number 14, which was the start of the Crisis of Earth Sea crossover event. We had our crew plus the characters from Captain Carrot's comic book, the JLA, that's just a lot of animals, and the creators of the comic books in our real world, including E. Nelson Birdwell and Duck Giordano. And that's just the start of the puns, because that's what Captain Carrot comics are all about. I also picked up Captain Carrot 9, which was a crazy time travel tale. And from Countess Ruth and Count Darren of the Sutherlands, I read Batgirl 31 from 2002, meaning it was written by the great Chuck Dixon. This is Cass Kane, and in this issue we also get Tim Drake and his dad, Spoiler, and Connor Hawk. It was very early 2000s, and I enjoyed it. And from Clinton Robinson of Coffee and Comics, I read Thunderbolts 114, a good story that took place in the Civil War era with this version of the team enforcing the registration law. And in this case, tracking down Steel Spider was written by Warren Ellis and was solid stuff. And some kids' books that I read, some from the care package of Sir Robert Lance, some from the Black Friday sale at World's Greatest Comics, some from Ron Sadowski. I enjoyed Archie and Me, 110. Betty and Veronica, Double Digest, 197. Pep, 371 and 373. Richie Rich, Success Stories, 72. And Archie at Riverdale High, 51. Pep is one of the all-time classic Archie titles, but just between us, I'm less a fan of it than most of the others. It's the Everybody in the Pool book. So in addition to Archie stories and his buddies, you get things like That Wilkin Boy and Lil Jinx. And the Richie Rich issue was a double-sized 52-pager, so that makes it an even better deal. Oh, but speaking of Little Jinx, do you know what's worse than Little Jinx? Little Jinx's chum Mort, appropriately named, who had a story in Pep 371. And in that story, his co-star was a green worm in a purple cape. No, really. I haven't been drinking. In comparison, Little Jinx is, I don't know, think of something you really like. Little Jinx is like Silver Age Adam Strange, to give you an idea just how bad Mort is. Okay? And like last month, I want to give another shout-out to Scout Comics 
and the podcast Drawn and Paneled, co-hosted by our old buddy Jason Marcinet. On that show recently, they had a contest, and I won. And my prize was a handful of comics from Scout Comics. And in February, I read the other two of those initial titles. I talked about the other three last time. These were Heavenly Blues, number one, and Zinnober, number one. And like I said last time, neither of these is a superhero capes and cowls story in any way. And I like that sort of variety in comics. And since I talked last time about the physical nature of the books, I will point out that these ones only had seven sheets, 28 pages, still less than a, than a traditional comic, which I'm sure saves on storage costs and, and mailing costs, that sort of thing. But they did have, again, 23 or 24 pages of content, so there's nothing wrong with that. As far as the issues goes, Heavenly Blues was the one of these that was much more interesting. Now, some of that is just a matter of what appeals to me as a reader, as it takes place in hell, and an angel, at least that's what he claims to be, gives a couple of the folks down below an offer they can't refuse, a chance to get to heaven. And all they need to do is steal something from heaven. That sounds easy. It actually sounds pretty intriguing, to be honest. So thanks again to Jason and his co-host George on Drawn and Paneled, and thanks to Scout Comics. Now, we're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about the graphic novels, trade paperbacks, and long runs that I read in February. Including this show's contribution to our network-wide crossover event. And we'll get to that right after this. Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We'll be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate. Black Canary. Fire. Ice. Maxwell Lord. Oberon. Captain Marvel. Rocket Red. Captain Adam. Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort! And many, many more. Justice League International. Blahaha Podcast. Coming March 2016 as part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? And we're back to talk about trades, long runs, and miniseries that I read last month. And we're going to start with this podcast's contribution to February. This is our six to seven week long crossover in which every show on the network is talking about a Doctor Who. And for this show's participation, that means I read Doctor Who comics. Like, a lot of Doctor Who comics. From the 1980s Marvel run, which reprinted stories from the UK Doctor Who magazine. For Quarterbin Podcast 131, I read Doctor Who number 8. I also read Doctor Who 4 and 7, seeing as M had all three of those issues in their short box. At least one of the ones 
that was still up my house. Anyway, without spoiling the Quarterbin too much, even though that came out a few weeks ago, I enjoyed these stories of the Fourth Doctor, with his companion created for the comics, Sharon, and K-9 saves the day more than once. And Dave Gibbons drew these. And that was a good thing. Now, some of the other Doctor Who books that I read were given to me by the Countess, Ruth, and Count Darren of the Sutherlands. And these are all from the Titan Comics era of Doctor Who, including Doctor Who, the third Doctor, 2, 3, and 5, Thanks to the previously on boxes in the issues, just having these three was enough to figure out what was going on in the whole five-issue mini, and I did have the last issue, so that certainly helped. Now, I'm not going to talk about the writing or the art, but I am going to mention the writer, Paul Cornell, and the artist, Christopher Jones, because they were both at the recent Gallifrey One convention, which me and M attended and both of those fellows signed my issues. The artist, Christopher Jones, talked about making up a list in his mind of all the things he wanted to draw when he heard that he'd be doing a third Doctor story. And then, when he got the scripts from Cornell, they were all there. The Brigadier, Joe, Unit, the Master. And Cornell also threw in an extra bonus Doctor for Jones to draw. And Cornell is a huge Doctor Who fan. He did almost as many panels at Gallifrey One as podcasting's Michael Bailey does at DragonCon. I mean, almost nobody does that many panels. But Cornell will also pop into panels just as an audience member, just as a fan. Oh, and did I mention I had dinner with Paul Cornell one night at Gallifrey One? Yeah, I'm warning you. Get used to hearing me say that. But for the whole story, Listen to Shortbox Showcase 62, our upcoming Galley 1 recap episode. And in terms of Whovian comics that I read, we also have the Doctor Who, the Eighth Doctor, 1 through 5. I have not dived deeply into the expanded Doctor Who universe as deeply as others. I'm looking at you, Shag. So my experiences with Paul McGann's Doctor is somewhat limited. I've listened to a couple of his audio dramas recently. But I'll be honest, that's about it, at least up until here. So I was glad to see this one on Hoopla, and I really liked it. I really liked this version of the Doctor, at least as he was presented by writer George Mann in this series. What you have here is basically five interconnected stories, you know, one per issue, different settings, different time periods. But in each one, the Doctor and his new companion, Josie, who we meet in issue one, are trying to figure out how she is able to so accurately paint renditions of the Doctor's future and his vilest villains. It's a good story, and I liked both this Doctor and the new companion, and the mystery was interesting and well-written. Doctor Who, the 11th Doctor, 1 through 15. This story caught my attention because it involved the War Doctor, or at least it involved the and Doctor Who, the 11th Doctor, Year 2, 1 through 15. This storyline caught my attention because it involved the War Doctor, or at least it involved the aftermath of the actions of the War Doctor. The gist is that uh, the Doctor is being accused of war crimes, but there's a hole in his mind regarding his actions uh, during the Time War, the actions of the War Doctor. 
So he and his team escape, and he has to dig deep into the actions and effects of the Time War to clear the Doctor's name. And I love the idea of this. The Doctor is a chaotic figure at best. And the War Doctor is even worse than that. Therefore, it makes sense that someone, some planet system, some race, is going to try to hold him account. Of course, classic TV had its trial of a Time Lord. And I like that the comics took a page from that story as a broad template for their own updated version, tying in the Time War. The Doctor in this series is joined by Absalon Dak, Dalek Killer, a character from the 80s British comic stories. And he is really mad at the Doctor because he killed all the Daleks, which was Absalom's job, not the Doctor's. And of course, whenever the 11th Doctor really needs help, he turns to... River Song. Now, that character didn't look much like Alex Kingston, but the banter between her and the Matt Smith take on the Doctor, that was right on. And this is a a 15-issue story, which is season-long in terms of how Titan operates. And it worked. It was a big enough story to tell over that many issues, and it was nice to see more glimpses of the Time War than I ever had before. And certainly the presence of the War Doctor in the story was pretty cool. Doctor Who Ghost Stories 1-4 through is a, a digital first series that follows up on the return of Doctor Mysterio Christmas special from a few years back. In this series written by George Mann and drawn by Ivan Rodriguez, we learn that Grant has been serving as the hero The Ghost for eight years along with his now-wife Lucy and her daughter Jennifer. The Twelfth Doctor shows up when they go on a mission to find the other three alien gemstones, which are the sources of Grant's powers. Following each gem's trail through time, this team faces down the fearsome character The Smoke, freeing a planet from the Harmony Shoal, and then going head-to-head with the Cigarax. And this really is a team effort as Lucy and Jennifer do almost as much important work in these issues as the ghost and the doctor do. I enjoyed this a lot. I really liked that original episode, that Christmas special, and thought that this served a very solid job as a very legitimate follow-up. And I read the year-long mega crossover that Titan recently did, Doctor Who Prisoners of Time 1-12, through which consisted of one story each, for the first 11 Doctors, that's that's the first 11 issues. And it's all the master plan of, well, the master. And he's using a surprise guest. Someone that the Doctor snubbed at one point and was none too happy about it. So they travel through time from Doctor to Doctor. Again, one per issue for the first 11. Stealing companions from each one, including the great shape-shifting Penguin Frobisher, a comics-only companion. But each issue also gave a good rip-roaring adventure, with the companion stealing only occurring at the end of the story, at at least for the first batch, in a nice plot bit that I'm not going to spoil as we move into further iterations of the Doctor. That bit of story takes on more and more significance, more and more of the page count, as the Doctor begins to understand what's happening. It's a solid, well-thought-out bit of plotting, to be honest. 
And the way they put the series together was well considered. Scott and David Tipton wrote the entire thing. But there were different artists or art teams on each of the issues, each chapter of the story. And that had the advantage of keeping the series on schedule, of course. But from a narrative perspective, it also has the advantage of having each chapter look different, which is fitting given the 50-plus year nature of the TV show. That was a great little choice, and I thought it worked. I'm not going to give spoilers as to how this wraps up, other than to say the obvious. It has a happy ending. Things pretty much work out for pretty much everybody. And it's a good read. Long stories like this can be tough to pull off, but the Tiptons and Titan Comics managed to do that pretty well with this one. Good stuff. I really enjoy what Titan has been doing. Although, it does seem that they're cutting back on their output this year. I imagine that is somewhat about overall sales, but I also hear there might be some BBC involvement in that decision. And that is all of the February content for this month. But of course, the event is bigger than a single month, and there will be some more Whovian comics read next month. But let's move on to the rest of the miniseries long runs and trades that I read in February. From a range of discount bins, I read the next storyline from a series I just started reading a few months ago, but really, really enjoyed. And these issues, Queen and Country, 13 through 15, were again very good. This one was a much smaller story, which was a nice change of pace for a government spy type of book. And this one, the daughter of an important English businessman is taken advantage of, then blackmailed by an agent of the French government. The girl is an old friend of Tara Chase, so she is sent to straighten it all out. And it gets messy, almost as messy as Tara's personal life has become. In every Q&C storyline, they use a different artist, at least so far. And it took me a little while to get into Jason Alexander's work here. And I never totally did. That is one of the problems with the black and white comic, at least for me. If the art isn't really crisp and clear, it can be hard to tell some of the characters apart without the visual cues that color can provide. Hair color, clothing color, etc. Now, I've got a bunch more of these, including some that I purchased for the magical price of two bits. So I may be talking about some more Queen and Country sometime, maybe on another show of mine, even. My good buddy and regular guest on this network, Luke Giaconetti, sent in a fun care package recently, which included a couple of those awesome DC dollar comics from the early 80s, World's Finest, 264 and 277. These each had five stories in them, one Batman-Superman team-up, of course, and then Green Arrow, Hawkman, and Shazam. The fifth story uh, in one was Aquaman, and the other was Zatanna. And this surprised me a lot, as it goes against my general fandom. But the Aquaman story, him going up against Dr. Light, that was better than the Zatanna story. Of the others, there was a great Soups and Bats and Clayface story by... O'Neill, Buckler, and Giordano. Mike Barr wrote a good Green Arrow story about a new casino that's in the pocket of the mob. And both of the Hawkman stories 
were pretty good too. In my memory, this is a great era of comics, and I'm glad that the stories in this one lived up to that nostalgia. I also read an earlier issue from the run that I nabbed for 50 cents from my LCS, World's Finest 214. This was a Steve Skates story starring Superman and Vigilante with a guest appearance from Batman. Batman's appearance was to look at a photo of a person in Western gear and deduce, based on his appearance, that he was a werewolf. No, seriously. That's what happened in the story. And since he is Batman, he was right. And since werewolves are magical, this is where Vigilante comes in saving Superman's bacon. And I know what you're thinking. That story sounds crazy. Yes! It was as crazy as that sounds. Dr. Anthony the Engineer sent a care package around the holiday season, which I think I've mentioned before. And included in that was DMZ, 60 through 65, the complete Free States Rising arc of this Vertigo title by Brian Wood and Sean Martinborough. This is getting pretty close to the end of the title, only one more arc, six issues remaining. And it did have the feel of coming to a close. This is a post-apocalyptic story, and in these issues, the U.S. military, or what's left of it, is trying to take back Manhattan from the Free States Militia. Good, gritty, near-future story. I was impressed by this one. From the dollar boxes at Journey Into Comics, I read the first half of a 1991 miniseries, The Deadly Foes of Spider-Man 1 and 2, and I dug it. Speed Demon, the Beetle, the Rhino, and a bunch of other troublemakers are teaming up under the theory that together they can succeed where individually Spider-Man always beats them. And no surprise, the villains have a few troubles working together as a team. And I finished up a series that has strangely sucked me in over the last few months, which I picked up from the quarter bins, and that is Fool Killer 7 through 10. And I think I like the way it wrapped up. As we say around here a lot, endings are hard. But they managed to stick the landing on this one pretty well. And it had a lot of social commentary, a lot of politics, quote-unquote. But I appreciate the way that that was handled here. Because it was political, like comics have always been, but it wasn't partisan, which comics have become more recently. The people that the fool killer deemed to be fools, and thus killed, included urban street criminals, a mega-rich business executive, a right-wing radio host, and a hippie-ish anti-war protester. And that simple message, that foolishness is equally spread throughout humanity, is a pretty good message. Every side of every argument has its fools. Even your side. And acknowledging that, recognizing that, realizing that, is not a bad thing. And from Hoopla, I read the next volume of a series I've been really enjoying, Detective Comics 975-981. In the aftermath of a recent tragedy, the team is not holding together as well as Batman had hoped. Kate Kane has left to do her own thing, forced out of the family, truth be told, and that is not setting well with her, especially with the long history that she and Bruce share. And in this arc, they sort of 
work through some of their issues and come out the other side. And then you also have some time travel mumbo-jumbo in some of the issues with a future Tim Drake and Brother I becoming involved. James Tinian IV is really writing some solid stuff in this run. The balance of character development and plot stuff is tricky, and he's been working it out very well. It's been one of my favorite titles since the Rebirth renumbering, and issue 1000 is right around the corner, and I'm looking forward to that. Sir I was Joe, sent a bunch of comics in recently, including every book from Epic's Shadowline imprint, and I read the entirety of those comics last year. But Sir I was Joe also sent in the trade paperback series that wrapped up the series, and I wrapped that up reading Critical Mass 4 through 7. The whole line is about the going public of the Shadow Dwellers, a race of powered beings who have dwelt alongside humanity for millennia. Some of them go public as heroes, and some of those, I'm looking at you, Dr. Zero, are not quite as heroic as they pretend. But in these last, final issues, Powerline and St. George and even Dr. Zero have to team up to keep the world from being destroyed by the machinations of Professor Henry Clerk, a classic mad scientist who thinks that a little nuclear destruction is just what the world needs. I have to give scripters D.G. Chichester and Margaret Clark a lot of credit here, as this really wrapped up the stories of the characters in interesting and satisfying ways. And yes, the idea of we're on opposite sides, but let's team up to take out this even greater threat, that's very common in comic books. This one, I felt, earned it. Now, in prior discussions of these books, I kind of danced around the character of St. George, because as you know, I pay close attention to characters of a religious nature. In this case, an actual priest who feels called to serve humanity as the embodiment of St. George versus the evils of the dragon. And that's because I wanted to wait until I had the whole story of that character, that whole arc, before making a pronouncement of my feelings on how they handled the character. And they handled it really well. His faith was shown as a valuable part of his character. And through his experiences, he has changed. His faith has changed. But he comes out a more mature person and a more mature believer than he started the series as. I thought that aspect was really well handled. Sir, I was Joe. Thank you, man. I really appreciate you sending all of these my way. And I think... That's everything. In terms of my favorite reads of the month, first off, Don't Knock Street Angel vs. Ninja Tech. It was pretty darn funny. And of course, a lot of those Doctor Who books were strong. Captain Carrot is crazy. Justice League Dark continues to be strong. Queen and Country is excellent. I liked Deadly Foes. But in terms of the favorite book of the month, the best title that I read was DMZ. And this run, this arc, Got off to such a good start, I'm going to have to say that my favorite read for February was DMZ 60. Now next month, I don't have a ton of themed reading, just some more Doctor Who. But beyond that, who knows? And whatever I do read, I will be here to talk about the books that I read in February 
in an episode that ought to be out sometime in early March. Feel free to let me know what you think of this episode, what you think of any of the books that I mentioned, especially if you've read any of them yourself. You can send in that feedback via email at relativelygeeky at gmail.com or as a comment on the Facebook and blog post for this episode. The blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. You can follow the network on Twitter at relatively underscore geek. And of course, the network has its own page on Facebook as well. Come join us. All are welcome. Thanks for listening, and keep the pages turning.